Um, so you can open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 6. As you're turning there, I want to just say that uh, over the years I've had countless discussions with uh, Roman Catholic friends and sometimes Roman Catholic uh, people that I've just met on the street or, or met someplace. And as we have discussed and, and talked about their religion and, and my religion or Catholicism versus biblical Christianity is what I believe, that the typical subjects arise. You know, there's a discussion of Peter and the Pope and, and Mary and the Mass and, um, and sacraments and tradition or purgatory and penance and the priesthood. And, and each of these conversations and each of these areas of discussion with Catholics can, can take a course of their own. Um, but I want to focus this morning in light of our, our text in Leviticus chapter 6, uh, just about the priesthood. Just what kind of things do you say to a Catholic about the priesthood? Or just kind of trying to identify and just say where, where their views might be a little bit different than our views or views of Scripture. And as I've spoken to them, I've, I've often said, you know, we don't need a priest because Jesus has become our priest. And, and then I tell them, that, you know what, nowhere in the New Testament is there a, New Test, is there a church leader, a leader of the church in the New Testament, identified by the word priest. Instead, there are words like, like pastors, evangelists, uh, shepherds, elders, overseers, and deacons. But it's never priest. And that's because Jesus has become our priest. We don't need priests today. And furthermore, right, there, there are some verses in the Bible that would really speak against the practices of the Roman Catholic priesthood. Like in First Timothy chapter 1, it says the Spirit explicitly says that in latter days men will follow teachings and they'll depart from the faith. And some will teach that you're forbidden to marry and that you need to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Right? Marriage is something that God has given us to enjoy. Foods are given to us to enjoy. But, but this is speaking about those who would come with some ascetic rigor and just say what you need to do is really forbid marriage and, and forbid these foods and be hard on yourself. Maybe whip yourself flagellate yourself by a means of disciplining your bodies and then you'll be closer to God. And yet there is this thing about Catholic priests. If you're a Catholic priest, you cannot be married. The teaching of those who forbid marriage, which, by the way, is the major reason for the sexual scandals in the Roman Catholic Church, without a doubt. Because the way out of sexual immorality is sexual activity in the confines of marriage. Well, furthermore, then we start talking about other things in the priesthood, like um, father. Jesus said, call no man father. This was to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, when just before then he said, let no one call you rabbi, teacher. In the verse after it, let no one call you instructor, like, like you're the teacher, you're set up to be the teacher. And yet, the Roman Catholic Church across the world over are called what? Father. In direct violation of this verse. And just, you know, it's the scripture. The Roman Catholics, one thing I love about them is that they love scripture. And they revere scripture. But they don't know what it says. And verses like this might cause them to doubt the priesthood or what, what they're talking about. Or, and then I tell my Roman Catholic friends, right, we don't need a priest because Jesus has become our priest. And, and in fact, in many ways, we're all priests. Peter calls us a royal priesthood, First Peter 2.9. And that is that we can come to God without a mediator because we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, think about it. the role of a priest is to is to speak to God on behalf of people, different than a prophet. A prophet speaks to people on behalf of God, 
but a priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. And it, until uh, Vatican II, 1960s, when the worship was performed, the altar was here and the, the priest performed his worship with the people to his back, worshiping to God on behalf of the people. But we are a priesthood. Now, they've changed that. Vatican II has changed a lot. In America, Roman Catholicism is a lot different than it is in other places. Uh, Latin America, whenever it's dominated, it, it corrupts. You'll see that. But uh, the Bible clearly says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We don't need a priest to bring us to God because we have a mediator, Jesus Christ. And we don't need to come and confess our sins to a certain man who will assign us our, our penance or our Hail Marys or our fathers to say. James 5.16 says we should confess our sins to one another. This should be a common practice among Christians. You don't have to confess to a specific holy person. We don't need a, a priest because Jesus has become our priests. Now, all this to say this, in my many discussions with Roman Catholic friends of mine, I found myself repeating this mantra, you don't need a priest because Jesus has become our priest. You don't need a priest because Jesus has become our priest. And my hope is that then they would, would go to Jesus rather than put their hope in a fallible man. <clears throat> now, in many ways, this is totally true. It's what Hebrews speaks about, how Jesus has become our great high priest, and we, we come to God through Him alone. And yet, as I, I looked this week and thought this week and prayed this week about Leviticus chapter 6, I, I want to modify, I want to begin modifying my statement as I speak with Roman Catholics to say this, we need a priest. Jesus is our priest. Because that's, that's the great reality, is that we, we need a priest. Jesus is it. It's not that we don't need a priest because Jesus has become. No, we need one. And Jesus is our priest. Well, as we come to Leviticus chapter 6, that's the burden of my message this morning, is that we need a priest, because I think that that's a big idea of this, of this text. Two months ago, we started in Leviticus. Um, then with my trip to Nepal and India, that was um, deviated, interrupted for a little bit, but it's a good time now this morning to review my opening message called You Shall Be Holy, as the uh, theme of Leviticus is. There's the Old Testament. Jesus is right in the midst of everything in Leviticus, and we should be holy. We serve a holy God. We should be holy people as a result. And that's the call of the book of Leviticus, to holiness. That is purity, separateness, righteousness, cleanliness. And the first theme of the book is a theme of sacrifice, which came about in the first five chapters. You remember the chapter one is the burnt offering and chapter two is the help me help me grain offering and chapter three is the peace offering and chapter four is the sin offering and chapter five is the guilt offering. And over the course of those five weeks, we went through the detail in those passages, though trying not to miss the main point. The main point, in case you've missed it, all right, is we need a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice. To approach God, we need to atone for our sins. That's the whole point of Leviticus 1-5. through We need a sacrifice. We, we need to bring an animal, a bull, a ram, a goat, maybe a turtle dove or a pigeon. And the animal needs to lose its life to pay for our sin. It matters not whether we sin unintentionally or intentionally. Anytime we transgress the law, break the law in any way, we need a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Now, last time I checked, we... We don't have bleeding sheep and, and mooing cows around our, our church building. And I don't have a, a sword in my hand or a, a dagger or a knife so as to split their 
their necks so as to let their blood pour out so we can burn them upon the altar. So why? Listen, it's not because we don't need a sacrifice. No, we need a sacrifice just like we need a priest. In order to approach God, we need a sacrifice. But here's the news. The good news, the gospel is that Jesus is our sacrifice. It's not that we don't need a sacrifice. We do, but Christ has become. And for us who believe in Christ, He has paid the penalty for our sins. He died in our place just like that animal died in the place of the worshiper. And this theme is throughout the New Testament. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Paul called Jesus our Passover Lamb who's been sacrificed for us. And in Revelation 5, we see Jesus pictured as a Lamb that was slain and His death is what purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the first five chapters of Leviticus helped to build this framework so that when Jesus died on the cross, we'd have these, um, these motifs in our mind so that when He died, we'd understand it. Because without Leviticus 1-5, through 5, without explicit instructions, explanation, and other pastors, I'm sure, about the significance of sacrifice and death, Jesus may well have died in vain because we wouldn't have understood what He did for us. But He was dying in our place as our sacrificial animal. Far more abundant in worth. Far more worthy in efficacy of our sacrifice. So that was Leviticus 1-5. through And now, chapter 6, we, we turn the corner a little bit. Now we're going to focus on the priests for the next five chapters. Um, and uh, without Leviticus chapter 6 through 10, Jesus may well have appeared on the scene without this picture of preparation, and he would have claimed to be this priest, but we wouldn't have really understood what a priest is about. But Leviticus 6 through 10 helps us to understand and see and understand what it means to be a priest. And as we look at the role of priests in chapter 6 through 10, we're going to get a glimpse of, of the role of Jesus in, in our lives. We need a priest, Jesus is our priest. Well, if, if you look at chapter 6 and 7 particularly, which I, I planned to preach through all of 6 and 7, but I just I couldn't get through all of it. So I don't know what I'm going to preach on tomorrow or next, next Sunday as it's Leviticus 7. It'll be some challenging, but there was enough here in Leviticus 6. I wanted just to slow down and, and get at that. Uh, as you read through 6 and 7, you might say, hey, this is just a repeat of chapters 1 through 5 because it goes through the same five offerings telling the same story about the sacrifices that need to be offered. But they're in a little bit different order. There's the, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the sin offering in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7 come the guilt offering and the, the peace offering. So there's a little bit of a change. And, and, and the reason for that change is because these chapters come with a different perspective of 1 through 5. 1 through 5 come with the perspective of the worshiper. If you will, the, the perspective of the pew. Right? Of, of those who are sitting and, and worshiping the Lord and, and they're sinning and so they need to come to God. This is 1 through 5. But in chapter 6 through 10, the, the picture is more of the priest. The one who receives the offering or receives the animal or receives uh, whatever comes by the hand of people. And it's just different sides of the same task. And, and analogies abound all, all, all over the place with this. I just think about... Uh, Walmart. Betty's here from Walmart. You worked last night. Yes. Got off at 7 in the morning. 6 in the morning. Took a two-hour nap. Two and a half hours. How, how much sleep did you get last night? This morning? 
An hour and a half, okay? And I just love you how faithful you're, you're here. But, but think about Betty's perspective of a trip to Walmart, transaction to Walmart, is different than our perspective, right? When, when we go, we go in the store, we look at the prices, we choose our items, we fill our cart, we bring it to the cashier and bring it to Betty and just, you know, total all these things up and we pull out our, our wallet and we pay the bill. Going our way. But from her perspective or the one on the counter, it's different. They take everything from your cart, scan everything, bag them, and receives the payment. Now, a transaction takes place where there's a different perspective. Or sports analogy. Think of the difference between a quarterback and a receiver. Right? The, the, the quarterback takes a snap from center, drops back, avoids the rush, and throws the ball. And he throws his task is done. And, and, and the receiver is out trying to get open. And then when the ball comes, he catches it. And then he runs like crazy so he doesn't get tackled. The same thing, right? We're getting that ball, one task. Or you go to a restaurant. As a patron, you enter the store. Hopefully, you're promptly seated, given menus, served water, and you order your food, and then you have your time of chatting. And then all this food comes, you pay the bill, and you leave. But from the waiter or waitress, it's totally different. You come and you serve on them and you, you take their order and then you go back into the kitchen, which they didn't go back to the kitchen. You go back in the kitchen, you make your order and you're serving on four or five other tables at the same time and you bring the food out and you say, you come back and come back later and say, is everything okay? Yes, it is. And you're doing that multitask. You're just up and around all the time. Same thing, dinner out, but different perspectives. And so it is with chapters one through five. One through five is the worshiper and six through seven is, is the priest. And we can see that right at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying. This is the word of the Lord. Came to Moses and he was instructed not to tell all of Israel, not to tell the people, but to tell the priests. That is Aaron and all his sons. These are the first priests. And these words then are applicable for all priests after that. And, and when you understand that it's, it's Aaron's, it's Moses speaking to the priests, then the order of these sacrifices makes sense because it has more presented with administration in mind. How do you deal with these sacrifices? And, and we start with that which is most frequent, the burnt offering. And then we come, the, the second most frequent is the, the grain offering. And then the third most frequent is the sin offering, all in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, we have the, uh, the guilt offering and the peace offering, which don't occur as often. So it comes in a descending order of frequency is the change in order here. And you can do that just if you look in your Bible, search under burnt offering and search under a grain offering and you'll find a lot. But by the time you get to guilt offering and peace offering, you're not you're not dealing with a lot of data. OK, so let's let's continue. Command Aaron and his sons, verse eight, saying this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen garment under garment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn it. The fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Now, my, my first point, I'm not going to tell you now, but I'm going to work through this text. And then my first point is going to come kind of more at the end. 
Um, but have you noticed how concerned Moses was in the section for the role of the priests? Not a lot about the animals coming. Not a lot about what to do exactly with that animal. Um, not to mention even how the animal was to be slaughtered. But more on the back end, dealing with the burnt offerings, how to deal with the ashes, how to change your garments when you go outside the camp to dump the ashes, which garments to have on. And, and most of it, though, is all about keeping this fire burning continually. And here's the idea. We need a priest to keep our fire burning continually. See, when we come to God, we don't come on our own terms. When I was in uh, Nepal and in India, it was very interesting. All these, all these Hindu shrines I showed you yesterday. Um, a lot of those worshippers just kind of come on their own. They, uh, they bring their food offerings and their sacrifices and they visit these places. Particularly, I think Saturday is the day of worship. So when the church meets on Saturday anyway. And, and they come and they bring these food offerings and they do their chalk and they do their puja. Puja just means worship. And they do their thing and then they go and they leave. Very individualistic. Very however they want to do it. They just kind of kind of come and do their own thing. Uh, but with God, you can't, you can't just come and do your own thing. Remember when the Philistines were threatening to attack the Israelites in the day of Saul and Samuel? Samuel the priest told Saul the king, Go down before me to Gilgal. Behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So he said, just go down there. I know the Philistines are the problem. We're going to offer to God. We're going to really pray to Him. We're going to help seek His, his protection, His favor. And so Saul went down to Gilgal and he waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul panicked. And he said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he'd finished offering the burnt offering, who shows up? Samuel strolls into town. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul then, just like Aaron, the issue of the golden calf, tries to justify himself. (laughs) Think about this. When I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, he came the seventh day, okay? Saul was just anxious. And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Just like Aaron. That's where the Bible is so applicable is because we all make excuses like this. There's lots of excuses in the Bible. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly because... You need a priest to sacrifice for you. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Think about this. That you'd obey. You would have had the kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue because you're playing priest. You're worshiping God at your own whim. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart, namely David, And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Do you see how serious our worship is? He doesn't want us. God doesn't want us to come any way we want. Even the king can't get away with sacrificing for himself. Even the king needs priests. So likewise, we need a priest as well. We need a priest to administer and administrate our sacrifices. And and that was, I think, the point here in in chapter 6, right? In the case of the burnt offering, the the priest was to make sure the fire kept burning. 
you'd bring the, the sacrifice to the Lord and and then you'd put it on the altar which was burning. So you, you don't you, you don't you don't treat the altar like a backyard barbecue. When you say, yeah, we're going to have a barbecue this Sunday afternoon at you know two o'clock. Why don't you come? Why don't you bring your own meat? And just as people start coming, you say, OK, I'm going to fire up the grill now. And then you start the grill and then you put your meat on there. That, that's not the sacrifice. You see, the fire is already burning. The, the picture more is like a, a wood-burning pizza oven that's back behind you and it's burning. And then you come and make a pizza order and the guy says, okay, what do you want? You say pepperoni and cheese. He says, okay. And he, he does his thing with the, you know, the, the pizza and he puts it on and cheese and pepperoni. And then he puts it in his fire, which has been burning for hours and hours and hours. That's what the sacrifice is like. And you need your priest to be preparing the way to keep the fire burning. In fact, that's my first point here. The fire's burning. Verse 13 is the key, right? Fire shall keep burning on the altar. It shall not go out. It's like the Olympic flame, which burns always throughout the duration of the Olympic Games. Once it's lit, it stays on for the whatever, two or three weeks, whatever the games are going. Now, in our days, it's pretty easy. You just make sure you got a gas pipe there that's big enough to supply your gas, and you can make sure you got a big company behind you to supply all your your gas, and you're you're good to go. Um, in the days of Moses and Aaron, it's not so easy to gather wood, deal with the ashes, and fan the flame when it got low. And think about it, you got a carcass on there. How well do carcasses burn? Sopping wet with with water and flesh, they don't. You got to just yeah keep that thing stoking and keeping it burn all night so that whatever's there may may burn and. And to fan the flame when it got low and because he wanted to burn it all night. And I suspect even the, the priest may have had night watches in order to make sure this worked. Because it always had to be ready to receive your sacrifice. Like Super Walmart opened 24 hours a day. Now, I don't think they ever came at night. Their culture is a lot different. When the sun went down, they went to bed. They didn't have street lights and lights like we have today. It's helped our, our productivity immensely. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were some instances in the life of Israel when a uh, a special circumstance took place where maybe someone was, was, was gathering, was, was leading, coming from afar and just got in late at night and was, was leaving the next day and just had to sacrifice or wanted to sacrifice or sinned in some way and wanted to sacrifice. I bet they had a few night sacrifices in the light of the several thousand years of Israel's history. Um, maybe someone was leaving the next day and, and, and wanted to have a sacrifice but had trouble getting an animal and just couldn't work and explain it. I couldn't get it, some excuses, whatever. And If they came, like Motel 6, the light was kept on for them. It was always burning. It. At this point, I, I just think about a, a great point of application for us. Think about our great high priest, Jesus Christ, always seated at the right hand of God and always open for business, ready for us to come at any time. And, and we may, right, we, we just may take that for granted because it's always the way it is. But imagine if Jesus kept hours, only during the daytime he can come. There's nothing necessarily in God that says he's got to be available all the time. Could be in the daytime, but it's not. He's forever. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, we don't bring sacrifices to God anymore other than the sacrifice of our lips, that is, the giving thanks to his name. But we do have one who will always bring us to God. In fact, this is his, his job forever. This is what consumes the day of Jesus. 
He always lives to make intercession on our behalf. He makes intercession for His people as our great High Priest. Now, Jesus doesn't bring a sacrifice every time we we bring a prayer request or every time we come to Him, but rather He points back to His one great sacrifice. And, And He reminds the Father constantly, Oh, Father, remember the sacrifice that I endured upon the cross that covered this sin. And, and remember that sacrifice, that atones for this sin. In fact, 1 John 2, 1 calls Jesus our advocate. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is, Jesus Christ is our lawyer on our behalf. You know, in, in the adoption world, there's often an uh, attorney ad litem. Uh, I've seen this in my... My sister's dealt with this. The, the, the attorney is, is, is arguing on behalf of this child to the judge. And, and the attorney is totally for this child. What's best for this child. And so that's Jesus. Jesus is on our side arguing before the Father what is best for us. And He always points back to His sacrifice that He, he gave upon the cross. Jesus doesn't argue our merits before the Lord. He argues his merits, which were meritorious. They merited forgiveness. And, and the best thing about Jesus is he never goes home. Attorneys had light him go home and sleep. But Jesus, even better than the persistent widow, is always right there, seated at the right hand of God the Father on high, always interceding for us. So I, I say this. Your mediator is there. Are you making use of your mediator? Are you going to your mediator Fire's burning. Are you bringing your request to the Lord? Are you walking in communion? You know, when, when Paul says that we ought to pray always, First Thessalonians 5.17, um, it, it means that he's always open to hear our prayers. And our mediator, Jesus Christ, is, is there to hear our prayers and ready to act upon them and ready to bring them before the Father. In fact, our, our fighter verse this week, John 15, verse 7, not memorized it yet, but it says something like... Uh, if you abide in me and I abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it should be done for you. What, what's the premise of that? Is that there's such a relationship there that the things you ask obviously are within the scope of the relationship but will always be done because there's a closeness that you have with God. He's ready and waiting. The fire's burning. Are you coming? Well, that's my first point. Let's look at the next section. Okay, This is... a. The grain offering. And again, I'm going to give you my point kind of later, later through rather than just right at the beginning because it'll, it'll make better sense there. But this is a grain offering. Let me just read 14 through 18. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, and one shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that's on the grain offering and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of the meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat it as decreed forever throughout your generations. Um, From the Lord's food offerings, whatever touches them shall become holy. Now, I trust you remember the green offering. from Leviticus chapter 2. This is almost identical. Now there's some details left out because Leviticus chapter 2 is a lot longer. I don't know how many verses it is if I look back here really fast. It's uh, 14 verse, 16 verses and uh, the verses we have here are only 5. 
So it had more detail back then. It talked about how it could be made and how it could be baked, whether it's on the iron or on the skittle, and, and uh, also included some other things about worshiping, whether it's baked or unbaked and things like that. But the, the essence is the same. Fine flour, oil, salt, no leaven, no honey, and a small portion had frankincense, which was burned. It could be cooked or uncooked. And uh, you remember when I preached on chapter 2, I had Yvonne make some of this stuff? How many of you tasted that that I had? I know a lot of you did. Some people refused. Some, I, I came and said, oh, here's some of this bread. Ah, no, thank you. And I thought it tasted pretty good. Um, but we brought that to you. And it was interesting. I was in Nepal and India. Um, and uh, I, I had a lot of rice. Okay? Rice every day. I explained in my emails that rice every day, <clears throat> beans and lentil every day, and oftentimes potatoes with that every day. Sometimes it's spinach, and once a day you got meat. And the meat was just a small little bit of meat is what you had, but you had everything almost every day. But I think on maybe three or four occasions for breakfast, I got some bread. And this bread <clears throat> came like in tortilla patties. is about like yay big. and was greasy as all get out. But when I tasted it, I, I, I said, yeah, what are the ingredients to this? Are they just... Flour and salt and oil. And they're like, yeah. And in, uh, they call it roti. It's kind of like a, a special. It tasted just like the grain offering. I was like so excited. Like, this is like the grain offering. This is what priests have. And they're like, okay. <laughs> this is how we always make our bread. Right? What's, what, what are you so excited about? I'm like, well, because we don't get bread like this. But theirs are very greasy because they fry the thing. So they put it in the, the water and, they shush and, and fry, fry it. But it was, it was pretty good. But... The, the idea of that, think about it, simple and cheap. Simple and cheap. And over there, they're all about simple and, and cheap food. Anyway, here we see verses 14 through 18, the emphasis upon the priests, what they can do with the food. We, we find down in verse 18, here's the key, that every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord food offerings. That is, is every male could be having and, and, and here's what I pull from this, and I, I pulled this from Leviticus chapter 2 as well, so I'm, I, I think it's the same point, is that God cares for His priests. God cares for the leaders of His congregation. Think about this. If the Lord hadn't provided for the Levites, they would be out by the sweat of their brow, earning a living, and then coming in and serving, and that's okay and that's well, but it's difficult to sustain for the long term, but God had provided something to sustain it for the long term. He provided food for the priests. And this goes to all the priests. This, this food offering that we brought was easy and cheap. A little bit, the memorial portion would be offered to the Lord, and then everything else would be given to the priests. And let me just say, like I said in Leviticus chapter 2, the same principle applies to us at Rock Valley Bible Church. There's, there's ways that we give in the offering box and back to supply the needs that we have as a church. Uh, my salary and just a little bit for Kina and a little bit for Lance and, and some for the uh, um, the properties and improvements and things like that. And, and as I mentioned a couple of months ago, two months ago, that we're a little tight financially. And I just bring that to your attention. I put all the details in the weekly word. You have it. There's no, um, there's no surprise about it. Um, we may dip into our savings because of where we are. I don't know totally why. That's happening. Um, but, you know, if, if this things continue, then next year we as leaders will be stretched a little bit. We'll just look and we'll kind of tighten the hatches so we can live like we all live, right? When things are tight, you just don't spend as much. 
And so we'll seek to do that. But our heart is to see God's ministry expand and grow. And so I just put that on your, your heart and just would have you just prompt your heart of gratitude to give to the Lord. That is what actually the, the grain offering is about. It's an expression of thanksgiving to God. Just giving, giving to the Lord. And uh, my point number two is just thank you for your support. I, I thank you for the way you support our family. Uh, we've never lacked. I trust that we'll never lack in the future. But in the weekly word, I mentioned a few passages that apply. Galatians 6.6 6, Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. If you're benefiting by the ministry of Rock Valley Bible Church, you should give to Rock Valley Bible Church. The, the one who teaches spiritually should receive back physically. 1 Corinthians 9. 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much we reap material things from you? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And I just say this, wherever you are being spiritually encouraged, give your money there and support that and encourage that. Whether that's a radio broadcast, we have supported Grace to You for years because John MacArthur and his ministry has been so helpful and impactful for us. And there are other things, missionaries we support that... Um, some, they edify us, they help us, you know, say the Clintons, we support the Clintons and they're a credible help to us, encouragement to us. And so we cast our, our bread out in those ways. But if Rock Valley Bible Church has been helped to you, boy, help and support. So that's, that's my point there. Thank you for your support. And then verses 19 through 23, we're going to skip this section because we'll pick it up in chapter uh, 8. But it has to do with the, the grain offering that's offered when a new priest is anointed. Let me just read it for the sake of completeness. Um, and by the way, I'm trying really hard to read all the way through Leviticus in my exposition because I know there's some of you who never read the book. And upon hearing it, maybe will help you read it again. I hope maybe next year you, you pick up a, a, a reading schedule and you say, okay, I'm going to read through the Bible. And we get through Leviticus, it doesn't slow you down. But you say, oh yeah, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. And I want you to just cruise delightfully through Leviticus, having heard it in your hearing. But 19 through 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. That is chapter 8. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour, so regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall, in other words, just a specific kind of way that you should um, bake this thing. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Now, unlike the regular burnt offerings, this one is supposed to be wholly burned because the principle is this, is that the priest ought not to benefit from his own offerings. Um, so like, for instance, if a priest sins, the sin offering, which is normally presented to the priest and portion of it is eaten and uh, the rest is burned. If a priest sins, it's all burned because a priest not ought to benefit from his sin. And in the ordination day, it's a day when he ought not to give and benefit from. That's a day to give totally to God. And so that's the idea there. But we'll look at that in chapter eight. Let's go on to my third and, and final point, beginning in verse 24. And again, my point will come later. And so it'll make more sense. But here is the sin offering. We've dealt with the burnt offering. We've seen the green offering. And now the sin offering from the priest's perspective. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons. And again there you see the, the emphasis upon the priest. This is the priest's perspective. Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, 
shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. And the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on the garment, he shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. But if it's boiled in a bronze vessel, it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy, but no sin offering shall be eaten from which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned with fire. And there's some detail here. I'm just going to try to, try to get on the high surface of things. Here's, here's the deal. Is the focus is on the blood and the manner of eating. Uh, the blood is splashed on the garment. If it is, it's to be washed. If the boiled flesh, though, is boiled in an earthenware vessel, like from a, from a pot, then that should be broken. In other words, don't do it in a pot. If you do it there, and I'm not sure why, maybe the, the blood and the flesh gets down into the pores of it, I, I'm not exactly sure, but it's got to be this bronze vessel is the only thing that's allowed. And, and the reason there's this focus upon the blood is, as Gordon Wenham says in his great commentary, I've read every word of it, I think I'll read through this whole commentary, it's fabulous. He says this, Since it is the blood that purifies the altar and other sacred objects, it must not be spilled on other objects. If it is, it must be washed off. If that's impossible, the thing must be destroyed. So you can wash your clothes, but you need to destroy your earthen pot. I think of our day and age, when blood is spilt, we take great pains to protect ourselves right, from blood spills because they're dangerous. If a patient with Ebola has a blood spill, you're going to wear one of those goofy hazmat things. I guarantee you, you're putting those rubber gloves on three thick and you're not getting anywhere near that because when the blood spills, it's dangerous. But in those days, when the blood spilled, they took great care because the blood was sacred. Leviticus 11, 17, 11 has the key. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. See, life is in the blood, and the blood represents life. It represents the, the life that died, that paid for sins. It is to be regarded as a special, sacred uh, blood, treated with the utmost care. And when it comes to the blood of Jesus, the New Testament calls His blood precious. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were redeemed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of Jesus is precious. Um, some is His physical blood. Certainly, as Jesus' blood was, was there, but it's the, the idea of what His blood did and atoned for. He was the, the Lamb sacrificed par excellence, worth far more than any sacrifice that was ever offered. See, His blood ransomed us. It redeemed us. It paid for our sin better than any spotless Lamb. And His sacrifice was once for all because of how great it was. Now, without passages in the Old Testament, we might easily miss how special the blood of Jesus was. But with this, that says, you just take care of the blood because in it is life. It helps us to see how precious is the blood of Christ. So just, just think about songs we sing about the blood of Christ. 
you know it, you can sing it along because I don't want to sing solo. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as snow. How appropriate for the first snow day of the year, right? Or how about the fountain? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. Just the picture. I love the picture of the fountain that's flowing of the blood of Jesus that washes clean. Washed in this red blood. That's what Revelation, I think it's 13, talks about. Saints who are there washed in the blood of the Lamb. Or how about this one? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the amazing thing here is we're talking about the preciousness of blood, about the priest, but Jesus was both sacrifice and priest. As much as we need the sacrifice, we also need the priest. I want to just bring you to one passage in Hebrews which makes this connection that Jesus was the sacrifice and He was the priest. Hebrews chapter 7. Just right at, right at the end of the chapter. This is right after that verse I, I, I talked to you about that said that um, Jesus lives forever, always lives to make intercession for us on our behalf. I just want to look here at verses 26, 27, and 28 because it combines this aspect about Jesus being the sacrifice and the priest at the same time. So great is Christ. That's why Leviticus is all pointing right to Jesus. It says, It was fitting for us that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, points a son being perfect forever. Verse 26 speaks about the purity of our priest. That he is a, a pure priest. And we will get to that when we get to chapters 8 and 9 and 10. In chapters 8, it speaks about just the cleansing ritual to make sure that we have a pure priest. And, and then we see God's fire of blessing come down upon the sacrifice in chapter 9 and how he hates the unholy priests. Nadab and Abihu, chapter 10. But here Jesus is fitting that we have this holy, innocent, pure, undefiled priest. And that we'll, we'll get on that when we go to chapter 8. But we also have that Jesus is the final priest. 
Verse 27. He doesn't have to, like those high priests, offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for the sins of the people. He doesn't need to do that because once he sacrificed the final sacrifice, he did when he offered up himself. He gave himself as the sacrifice. Just think about how great the sacrifice was. A bug is a living creature, but makes no sacrifice, right? PETA doesn't go around arguing about the bugs that are smashed by the fly swatters. Right? They don't say, don't buy fly swatters, you can kill the bugs. No, no, that's it. But when animals start to be killed, sheep or bulls, then people start uprising. Save the whales. Save the dolphins. We even know the worth of animals, and certainly they are, and we should not abuse them, right? We don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing, right? There's a, there's a care for the animals, but there's a care if someone's working, the laborer's worthy of his wages. But, but even a, a human being, how much more valuable is a human being? And yet, even that is not off bounds. You think of the ancient Aztec culture, they, they sacrificed people and so did the Moloch worshippers. And in our day, the abortion industry, 40 plus million in America, we're, we're human sacrificing. We're, we know the value of human life, but we don't know it enough, and it's not valuable enough. But, but the sacrifice of Christ, when he offered himself, he, he was God. God offered himself. God was sacrificed. That, that's how valuable Christ was. And since he offered up himself and he becomes the high priest, this becomes a sacrifice. He brings his life to God and says, yes, I was sacrificed, but now I, I live. And we have a, a perfect priest. That's the idea of verse 28. Contrasting between the, the law appointing men and their weakness as high priests, right? Sinful men. These are, are the Levites. And we will see how sinful they are. Aaron is a, a sinful man. But, on the contrast, the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who is made, made perfect forever. And this gets into Melchizedek and the priesthood that Jesus was, which we don't have time for this morning, but we will... We will do that. But just look, look at the contrast there in abilities that the high priests are weak. But Jesus is this perfect priest who has offered up this perfect sacrifice. So we need a priest. And Jesus is our priest. I, I just pray that this through Leviticus would help us to see that. Well, let's pray. Oh God, we, we look to you. Thank you for Jesus who is our perfect priest. He's our forever priest. He never needs to be uh, replaced. The Old Testament priests need to be replaced since they died. But Jesus, since He never will die, He is alive to live forevermore. He always lives to make intercession for us. We don't need another priest. We have our great High Priest. And so, Father, I pray that we would, we would use Him and go through Him. And Lord, as we read in our Scripture reading, John 15, may we abide in Him Rather, in through Him we might bear much fruit. So help us, O oh Lord God. We, we need Your help. Point us to Jesus. And I pray this message would, would have helped us do that as the rest of the messages through Leviticus. Just point us constantly to Jesus who alone is our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.